We're finishing the book of Philippians today. We're looking at uh, verses 14 through 23 in chapter 4. So give ear now. This is God's word. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me here greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. Well, as we've looked through this letter, this letter that Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, we've been seeing how he's dealing with the circumstances of his life. He's dealing with the circumstances and the things that affect the church. And above all else, what we've seen, a consistent theme that we've seen through this letter is Paul's own personal joy, his own happiness about life, this happiness that sort of starts in his heart and it spills out over everything. And I think as we've come into contact with this week in and week out as we've looked at this letter over the summer, you know, if we're honest, our experience of happiness doesn't seem to be as consistent as Paul's, right? Our happiness tends to fluctuate with different things. And so let me just say at the outset, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to know that this is something, like this idea of fluctuating happiness this is something that everybody deals with, Christians and non-Christians. You know, we all, in one sense, are in the same boat when it comes to struggling to try to have a happy life. You know, and I think that sometimes our greatest issues with being happy in life falls under the category of wrong expectations. You know, it's what we expect from life, and when that doesn't happen, it steals our joy. It steals our happiness. We feel like we aren't what we need to be or life isn't what it needs to be. You know, and so one of the lies that we're all tempted to believe, this is everybody, one of the lies that we're tempted to believe is that we think that we'll be happy if we get just a little bit more, right? I mean, we think if I could just have enough, then I'll be happy. And different people fill that bucket with different things, right? For some people, it's if I could just have a little more money, right? Or if I can have just a little better relationship, you know, or if, if my career would make uh, one more advance, you know, we think then I'll be happy. You know, my, my struggle is if I just had a little more time. You know, I was in the office making jokes about myself. I'm working on the sermon, and, and I walk out, and I'm like, you know, if I just had more time, I'd be happy. You know, and Jackie laughs at me, and Cam laughs at me, because they know what I'm preaching on. Um, but this is, the, this is the temptation, right? We think if I could just get enough, right, that'll be the secret. That what stands between me and my happiness is this little bit more of, you know, you fill in the blank. And uh, just as an example, I read this week of a woman who was describing her fall into, a, into an affair. 
Okay, same thing happens there. Uh, this is what she said. She said, and we, you know, this, this man and I, we met to talk and have lunch. And we talked about our spouses and our growing need for each other as friends. And by this time, I'd become a skilled enough liar that not only was I lying to pretty much everyone I knew, but I was also telling myself I needed this man. I obsessed that only with him in my life would I be happy. The harder I tried to hold on to my own sanity in the midst of this, the more I felt like I was losing the grip on myself. You know, and this is how it works. You start with, gosh, if I was just a little bit more understood, then I'd be happy. Right? If I could have somebody who would just listen to me, then I'd be happy. You know, and it starts the spiral. It starts the spiral. And if we don't catch it in time, I mean, and the, and the worst thing is that is it doesn't work. <laughs> right? I mean, because sometimes the best thing in life can be that you actually get what you want and then you realize it doesn't make you happy and you'll stop looking in that place for it. I mean, usually when we achieve it, then we think, well, okay, it's got to be the next thing down the road and it's, it's a little bit more than I need now. Right? And this is what we find ourselves in. It's this, it's this vicious cycle that, frankly, it's enslaving. It's enslaving. And I think this is where you know, a lot of us are today. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is the cycle that we deal with. This is the struggle that we, that we deal with. And we're waiting for something more to be happy. Now, for Paul, what's amazing about Paul and what we've seen and what we're going to see is that for Paul, the key for him is to have your whole world turned upside down. Okay? Is to completely upend the way that you look at your life. The way that you look for happiness. For Paul... You know, he, he actually shows us in this passage three ideas that are the key to what will upend your, your perspective and give you a happiness that will last forever. Okay? And so those are the three points today in the sermon. Three ideas. Partnership, perspective, and provision. So if you want to take notes in the bulletin, there are your, there are your, uh, your bullet points. It's partnership, perspective, and then provision. And so let's look at this first one, partnership. Paul describes in these verses a relationship with this church that he calls a partnership. Look at verse 15. He says, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving. Okay, Paul describes his relationship as a partner. They were partners in giving and receiving. Paul was giving them the gospel, and they were giving Paul financial support. Okay? Verse 14 describes a little bit more about this partnership. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. So the Philippians, what motivated their need was Paul's trouble. Or what motivated their giving was Paul's trouble. He had a need. And the Philippians met that need. And so, I mean, it's interesting. These sorts of partnerships, what Paul wants us to understand and what, the, what his relationship with the Philippian church models is when we're in partnership, we've got a better chance at happiness. Okay, and let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. Paul actually, I, I guess we see this, in one way we understand how this works, another way it's a little bit, we, we don't understand it as much. But Paul gave the gospel to the Philippian church, right? He planted this church and brought the good news of Jesus. He brought the life-transforming power of God to come, you know, into this city. And the, and the people who believed in this formed the church. And so Paul had brought the gospel to this church. And so in one sense, everything that happened in the Philippian church, 
everything that these people did in every part of their lives, in one sense, could be credited back to Paul. Right? Paul was the one who brought the gospel. And so all of the work of the gospel that was done, the, the Philippians have Paul to thank for it. Right? We understand that. That kind of makes sense. Right? I mean, ultimately, it's God that's doing all the work. But in terms of the Philippians' understanding of Paul, they would look at Paul as their spiritual father. Right? The one who brought the good news to them, the one that caused all this transformation, that caused healing, that caused brokenness to be mended, that caused new life to come in to cause people to be letting go of their idolatry, letting go of the things that, that were binding them and serving Jesus. We, we understand that, but Paul goes further as he describes what the Philippians were doing. It was their gift to him that was meeting his needs. Right? Paul had real needs. He had real trouble, he says in verse 14. They entered into partnership in giving and receiving, verse 15. Verse 16, they did, they did it more than once. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Okay, and so what Paul is saying here is that they also have participated in Paul's work. Right? Their gifts to Paul, their financial support of Paul has enabled Paul to do things he couldn't do otherwise. They have provided for Paul's needs. And so because of that, they participate in all that he does. Okay, in one sense, and I guess sometimes we understand that if, if you maybe support a missionary or if you adopt a child in a third world country, right, and you get reports on how they're flourishing, you see what they're doing, you, you really do understand because of your financial support they're able to do what they're doing, and so you've partnered with them, and in a sense you get, I mean credit's not the right word, but you understand, I mean you actually participate in what they're doing, right, does that make sense? And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying that, you know, in a, he's saying that because of this partnership that we have, everything that you do, I can glory in. I can be happy about. I can be excited about. And everything that I do, you also can be happy about. You know, and so for us, when we think about this idea that, well, I'll be happy when I get enough, what Paul is saying here is that part of the key to being freed from that is to be in partnership. Right? It's to have real friendships. You know, partnership sounds, it's, it actually was a business term in the Greco-Roman world. It was a term that was describing business partners. And so sometimes that feels a little bit non-relational. What Paul is saying, though, is that if you are in the kind of relationship with someone else where you are meeting their needs and they're meeting your needs, then the fruit of that, your lives become connected. So the good that happens in either life ends up flowing into and spurring on happiness in the other. Does that make sense? And so what Paul's doing here, I mean, it's kind of amazing. I mean, because we think about that in friendships, but I mean, this is also why you support the church financially, right? You think about Harbor. You think about what we're trying to accomplish in the city, and all of us are just one person, right? And so often we like to hear stories about what's going on, what other people are doing at Harbor, because... You know, because we know that we can only do so much, or we're working on one little area, or we're working on some type of ministry, or maybe we're, maybe our major contribution is, is being in a small group and then working hard and taking care of our families, right? And that's the extent of what we can do, right? Well, when you hear stories of what's going on at Harbor, when you hear stories of what, I mean, and all this is, in one sense, a preview to the fall kickoff, what we want to try to do this year, you know, we want to do things that will make all of us excited so that if you participate in only one of the things, you can be excited about everything when you're supporting the church. Okay, and so certainly this is why you give financially 
to the church because when you give financially, but not just financially, when you pray for the church, right? When you show up to the church, when you come and you love people here in the community, when you provide support and encouragement, then, I mean, get a hold of this. Everything that goes on in this church is because of you. You participate in everything that goes on if you are doing your part in the family, right? You know, if, if some of you walk or run in the AIDS walk, okay, every part of the body is involved in terms of running 6.2 miles or walking three miles, okay? And so even if you were the, the kidneys that was cleansing the blood, right, you didn't actually work. You didn't move the, the body forward, but you kept the body clean, right? You purified the body. I mean, then you are part of the reason why the run or the walk was able to be completed. Same thing. Like, so no, matter, no, no matter what your part in the body is, if you play your part well in terms of your time, your talent, and your treasures, right? Those are the three T's of sort of how to describe, uh, you know, relationship to the church sometimes. Um, if you contribute in some way and you're doing your part in the body, then you get to be, you get to own whatever the church does. And that's exciting because I know for me, there's times in my life where there isn't enough stuff in my life to really make me happy, right? If I'm looking around for things to be excited about, you know, and obviously in those times I need to run to the cross. I need to run to Jesus and realize that God has done the most amazing thing for me. And, and we've talked about that in weeks past, but another source of happiness can be in what God is doing in the church and how you've been a part of that. And so again, instead of looking to try to get more and to get enough, Paul would push us and say, instead, look, develop partnerships, be a partner with other people, be a partner with the church, and then you can rejoice in what's happening and you can be a part of and be responsible for all that goes on as part of the church. Okay, and so this idea of partnership, the partnership that Paul had with, with the Philippians was one that, that increased his joy. Okay, our second point is perspective. Perspective. And this really is verse 17. And when I read this the first time, actually I read this first six or seven times, I completely missed this. You know, I, I chalk this up as, um, well, you know, that's kind of a nice spiritual thing to say. <laughs> and when I slowed down and actually thought about it, Look at verse 17. Paul just says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Not that I seek the gift. So it's not that I'm looking for your financial support, but what I'm actually looking for, what I'm seeking, is the fruit that increases to your account. This is an instance where Paul takes something that is very commonplace, very much a part of the normal, you know, scope of our lives, just thanking somebody for doing something nice, right? Thanking somebody for a gift. And he turns it into something that's world-changing. If you can get Paul's perspective here, your life will never be the same. I've been trying to pray this prayer. I've tried to turn this into a prayer this week. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy. What Paul does... It's his perspective that produces his ability to write verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What Paul is saying here is that he's not, in a sense, he wants to be cautious. 
okay, in thanking them for their gift. He doesn't want them to think that he is relying on them to provide for him financially, right? He said last week, we saw, that he's learned to be content with and without money. He's learned to be content with and without a home, right? He's learned to be content in jail or out of jail, right? But when he sees this gift, I mean, he does say that this gift met his needs. They shared in his trouble. And yet, for Paul, he wants them to know he's not using them for the money. He's not trying to fleece them. And in his day, there were a number of people that were sort of wandering teachers or philosophers that came to be known as people who were just in it for the money. And they were trying to fleece people of their financial resources. And so a lot of them were regarded as crooks and cheats. You know, it's not unlike today, right? Not unlike today, even in the church. But what Paul is doing here, Paul is saying, look, I want, I'm looking for your heart more than your money. Okay, he says something else in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this just, you know, it's, this is in the Bible. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14, he says, I will not be a burden, for I seek not what is yours, but you. I seek not what is yours, but you. Paul wants to distance himself from the people that make people feel like they're just in the ministry for the money. And he wants them to know from the bottom of his heart that what he's really concerned about is them. He's concerned about them. And so, you know, again, this hit me this week because I'm thinking, you know, in this relationship Paul has with this church, like, do I have this heart, you know, about finances? I mean, for me, when I think about money, when I think about the financial giving of the church, you know, I tend to think, okay, well, I know that this is the budget number because these are the ministries and these are the personnel and these are the things that we want to do to try to reach out and try to, you know, try to love the city. And so the number just needs to be met. You know, that's typically how I think about it. And we're either making the number or not making the number. And I try not to think about finances too much, but when I do, that's usually how I think. And I'm thinking, you know what, what Paul is saying here, you know, Paul is saying that the money is the demonstration, like what he looks for is does their gift, well, I mean, Paul is seeing their gift and saying, wow, they still love Jesus. They're still in partnership with me. They still care enough about me to want to meet my needs. I'm not even looking for the gift, but the fact that they sense my needs and then they give, like that makes him excited. That's what he's looking for. And so he's genuinely thankful because what he sees then too, it's not even... I mean, Paul, it's remarkable. It's not even, well, I'm glad you gave me this money because you gave this gift and it shows where your heart is. Like, Paul is excited because he knows that the gift that the Philippians gave him is going to be blessed by God. That's what he says. He says, I'm not seeking the gift. I'm seeking the fruit that increases to your credit. Right? He says in verse 18, um, he says that the gifts you sent are a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And so Paul sees what they're doing, and it's almost like, and I guess to try to understand this to some degree, Paul is he's acting almost like a parent, right? He actually describes this in 2 Corinthians, I guess it's, I think it's chapter 8. Um, He says, um, uh, it's not eight. Well, he says in one place in the Corinthian correspondence, he says, you know, no parent wants to be a burden on their children. 
And so, you know, nobody wants to, 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 no parent wants to feel like their children have to, to, you know, to support them, although inevitably that's what happens, you know, and, and that's a good thing for, for children to honor their parents in that way. But what Paul is saying here is like, look, I'm not looking for the gift. I just want you to flourish. I just want you to flourish. I want the gospel to run wild in your hearts. And the gift is a sign that that's what's happening. The gift is a sign that that's what's happening. And so Paul got excited because he knew that their good work would be rewarded by God, that God was going to bless them for it. And that's what got Paul excited. And so again, perspective. If you're looking at what you can get, if you're looking at what comes in, if, you, if you're looking at trying to get enough of something, you're destined to not be happy. But if you can flip the perspective and be excited about what people are giving, excited about what other people, what, what, what fruit of the gospel is going on in other people's lives, that's a road that leads to real happiness. Um, I mean, I had this experience, I think, yeah, it was this year where I'd been given a certain amount of money for my birthday, okay? And, and things were a little bit tight in the house, and there were a couple of things that came up. And so I chose to use, poor, you know, basically I chose to use my birthday money to buy gifts for other people, okay? And I can honestly tell you, like, I'm not saying, I mean, well, I can honestly tell you that, that, <laughs> like, I have more joy right now, even, over doing that than anything I would have bought, right? I mean, I've, you know, that's usually the pattern. Like, I got my list of stuff I want, and then birthday money comes in, and I just check it off the list. I buy the stuff I want, and, and we go on. I mean, there is, I mean, this is where the Bible talks about it's more blessed to give than receive. I mean, when you buy what you want, you use it, and then typically what happens is it runs out of its usefulness, right? And then you throw it away or you give it to somebody else or whatever, and, and, and you move on. When you give to someone else, that never, ever goes away. The joy that you got because you did something for someone else, that never, ever goes away. You know, anytime you think about it, I mean, you can get proud about it, which isn't the right way to go, but I mean, you can think, like, I gave real joy to people. And that's never, ever, ever going to go away. And that's kind of the perspective that Paul has. Paul's not concerned about what he's getting, but he's concerned about the hearts of other people. He's concerned about how God is going to repay. He's excited about the fact that they're living in relationship with God, that the gospel is at work in their lives, and these folks are being transformed. And if you can grab onto that perspective, then your source for happiness becomes everybody that you know. And seeing what is God doing in their life, and being excited about that. And so that's a perspective, I think, that can lead us to being really honestly and truly happy. So that's the perspective. Now, our third point, our third point is provision. Provision. Okay, so we've seen the partnership, we've seen the perspective. Now, third, the provision. In one sense, Paul wants to pay these folks back. Okay, he's gotten this amazing gift. Paul's heart would be to reciprocate in some way because they've got this partnership of giving and receiving, right? And so Paul wants to give them back. And it's almost like I can imagine Paul saying, yeah, what can I do? Oh, I know. And then he writes verse, what is it, 19? Paul's concerned about wanting to reciprocate. And so what he does, he says, he realizes, and then he says, verse 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Gosh, this is amazing. I mean, in, in a sense, when Paul looks around at how to reciprocate, he realizes 
in looking at the fruit that's accruing to their account, that the one who will reciprocate for them much more powerfully, much more abundantly, much more richly, much more personally to them is God himself. In this partnership, it's kind of like this. It's almost like Paul is saying, look, in this partnership, (laughs) whoever gives more ends up like with a bit of a credit. And if you have a credit, guess who pays you back? It's God. If you ever outgive someone else, this verse is saying that God will pay you back the difference. You know, and I think it's a little bit silly to think about God paying us back when we think about the bigger picture of what he's already done for us in Jesus. But that's part of the wonder of grace is that he does pay you back. He does. We'll talk about what, how he pays us back here in just a second. But God himself will pick up Paul's end of the reciprocity by meeting their needs. Every need that they have. And so how does God do that? Well, what God does, how does God meet needs? He brings heaven to earth. Okay? That's how God meets needs. He brings heaven to earth. God will supply every need that you have. And the way it works, it works in one of two ways. Okay? If you have a need and you go to the Lord with it, God will do one of two things. He will either give you what you're asking for to meet your need. Right? He did that with Paul. Right? Paul was in trouble, he says in verse 14, and God met his need with their gift. So God will either give you what you're asking for and your needs will be met or God will supply you with the grace that you need to get through without it. So let me ask you a question. Think about what you need right now. Would you rather have that or would you rather have a, an overflowing supply of God's grace. Paul says that he'll supply you, verse 19, according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. This phrase, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll, according to his riches in glory, what this means, it, it's a reference to where God lives. Okay, this is sort of locational. Okay, God lives in glory. He lives in heaven. He lives, he's seated, you know, in heaven, enjoying the worship of angels, enjoying the worship of all of those people that have died and gone up to be with him. He lives in glory where everything is perfect, where all of life is as it should be, except they haven't been resurrected yet, where, where, where life is, is glorious and perfect in, in, in every way. Okay, that's where God lives And that's where his wealth comes from, okay? That's where his riches come from, okay? Now, what I want you to grasp in this is that this means that when God supplies your needs, the way he does that is by bringing his glorious existence, his glorious heavenly realm. He brings that into your life, okay? When Paul says... God will supply all your needs in glory. He's saying God will take heaven where glory is and he will bring it into your life. So when you you think about heaven, when you think about what life could be, when you think about a vision for a perfected 
existence, a perfected city, when you think about all of that, how do you imagine heaven being? I mean, I know for some of us we think it's, it's maybe just it's the end of suffering, right? Or for others, it's being reunited with folks that have gone on. For others, it's seeing things that are broken in your life become fixed and healed, right? For others, it's maybe psychological healing, relationship healing. God has all of these blessings. These, all, these are all things that characterize what life with God is like in glory. And what Paul is saying here is that that's what God pours out into your life. So, I mean, the idea here, I, I guess that I want you to get a hold of, is that when we go to the Lord with our needs, when we go to God and tell him, God, I need more money, God, I need a better job, God, I need a better relationship, we pray that prayer, and God will open up heaven and pour out a response. The question is, what comes out of heaven from God normally? Okay, we're talking about expectations, right? What should you expect from God? And what I'm going to suggest is that you should expect from God what God has already poured out from heaven. Okay, what has come out of heaven and come down to earth? Yeah, Jesus. Right, Jesus has come. What did his life look like? Right? We need to sort of check our expectations with what has come down from heaven because Jesus in one sense came down to show us what the perfect life could look like in this world. Right? A life where he did have real happiness. A life where, I mean, yeah, he had frustration and difficulty and then you, know, you have the, the whole, I mean, his whole passion was, you know, served a different purpose. But in this life, Jesus, in his, you know, in his perfect life, he experienced something that was far less than what some of us are looking for in our lives. Okay? And so Jesus has come down from heaven. What else has been poured out from heaven? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, God pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. And you think, well, okay, so what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Paul says in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy or happiness. It's peace. It's patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so it's interesting that the two times that God has poured out something from heaven, you know, it's looked a lot different than sometimes what we ask God to give us. And I think if we can see this, it'll help us with our frustration because we get frustrated, right? We think, God, why not just give me the money that I need, Right? Why not just give me the job? Because I know then I'll be happy, right? Why not just give me the relationship? Come on, you know, like, can't you do both? <laughs> you know, you said, oh, do you want what you're asking for? Do you want grace? How about both? God, you're a big God, right? Can't you give me both? Sometimes he does. Sometimes he does. But why not just give me the stuff I'm asking for, right? I think this is what God says. He says, well, God says, well, here's what I'm doing. Okay, I am bringing heaven to earth. Okay, and I am bringing, when heaven comes, more of heaven will come into your life if you can just experience the blessings that I bring. It's not money that's going to make you happy. It's not a career. It's not relationships. It's me that you really need. And so often you are asking for things that will actually make you farther away from me. And so I find there are times when 
I have to make tough decisions and I have to tell you no to your requests so that I can say yes to helping you experience what you really need. So there are times when I have to say no to your requests so that I can actually bring heaven into your life. And for us, you know, the choice comes down. Well, am I going to trust him? Do I think that God is right in what he thinks I should have? If we say yes, then we can say, okay, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. As hard as that is, as, as difficult as that can be, knowing what we're going to face if we don't get this thing that we think we have to have. Or we can get angry with God and turn our back on him. That ends up being the choice that we make every time. And so you say, well, how do you trust? Like, how can you trust? I mean, for some of you who are believers, you've got a wealth of experience that you can draw from because you've seen how God has provided for your needs. Right? So that gives you the encouragement to move on. That gives you the encouragement to trust him if he, has to, if he says no to this thing that's before you. Sometimes we don't have a long wealth of experience where God has provided for our needs or we, don't, or we don't have the perspective yet to be able to see that he has done that for us. And in those cases, you have to read the last two verses or the last two, uh, the last two words of verse 19 or three words actually. Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying that this act of trust, you can't trust if you don't know the story of Jesus. Can God be trusted? Does God really care about your needs? Well, Paul said in Romans 8, verse 32. Paul said, He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything we need? If you are wondering this morning, if you can trust God enough to allow him to say no and still seek him, to allow him to determine for you what you really need in your life. If you're wondering, I just ask you to look to the cross. On the cross, God shows how much he cares about your needs. He cares so much for your happiness, not just in this life, but forever, that he would offer his own son so that you could know him. What drove Jesus to the cross was my sin and yours. Our sin is what draws us away from God. It's what creates barriers between us and God. It's where we don't want to serve him, but we want to serve ourselves or serve you know, other things that aren't him. And God says, you know what, even though you have spent your life or a portion of your life ignoring me, running from me, 
the cross tells you over and over and over again that I still love you and this is how much I love you. And if God was willing to sacrifice even his own son, then we can trust him to give us everything that we need. I mean, this is where Paul gets the audacity to say, my God will supply every need of yours. Annie Johnson Flint wrote this, his love knows no limit, his grace has no measure, his power has no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. This is what drove Paul. And it didn't just drive Paul, but this was the story that Paul told the people. And when he told them about Jesus, people began to believe it. They realized it was true, and they started following him. People from all over the place, Jewish people, Roman people in Philippi, and then even people in the emperor's own house. This is a joy that changes the world. Look at verse 22. Paul says, Greet every saint in Christ. The brothers who are with you, who are with me, greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. You might not understand the significance of this verse. Paul is in jail in Rome, and he's there awaiting trial before Caesar where the chances are pretty good that he will be executed because he has been declaring that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is. It's the same thing that got Jesus himself killed, right? He claimed to be a king. And so he was executed to, you know, because he was trying to overthrow the government, they, they assumed. And Paul, in jail, in Caesar's household, right? He's being guarded by the, the Roman Praetorian guard, Caesar's own guard. Right? He said in chapter 1 that the whole guard has heard about Jesus. <laughs> what we see here, haven't just heard, but there's people now. There are people in Caesar's own household who are acknowledging that Caesar isn't really Lord, but that Jesus is. The struggle that the Philippian church is dealing with so much of that struggle and the persecution is coming from Caesar and his, the people that are following after him, right? Caesar's men, his troops, are, are oppressing and they're persecuting Christians in Philippi. And what Paul is saying is, you know what? Even in his own household, they're starting to see. You may be suffering right now, but we've got a beachhead. We've got some spies that are infiltrating the emperor's own household. <laughs> Which shows, I mean, this is just, it's crazy. Like, this, this can't happen, right? This shouldn't happen, right? These are people who would die, I mean, who, were, who would be executed. These are people who know him well, right? And yet, they recognize that Jesus is Lord. They recognize that 
that he is, and they're, they're beginning to admit it. They're beginning to admit it. And so this infectious happiness, this infectious message of the gospel, this good news of Jesus, boy, it comforts our hearts, and then it changes the people around us. And it continues to happen today. Um, here's a, a part of an article um, written about a guy named Lee Strobel. Um, he was working as a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was assigned to report on the struggles of an impoverished inner-city family during the weeks leading up to Christmas. Okay? He was a devout atheist at the time. He was mildly surprised, this article says, by the family's attitude in spite of their circumstances. Okay? And this is what Lee Strobel said. The Delgados, 60-year-old Perfecta and her granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny, They'd been burned out of their roach-infested apartment and were now living in a tiny two-room apartment on the west side. As I walked in, I couldn't believe how empty it was. There was no furniture, no rugs, nothing on the walls, only a small kitchen table and one handful of rice. That's it. They were virtually devoid of any possessions. In fact, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny owned only one short-sleeved dress each. Plus, they had one thin gray sweater between the two of them. When they walked the half mile to school through the biting cold, Lydia would wear the sweater for part of the distance and then hand it to her shivering sister, who would wear it the rest of the way. But despite their poverty and the painful arthritis that kept Perfecta from working, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus. She was convinced that he had not abandoned them. I never sensed despair or self-pity in her home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace. Strobel completed the article, and then he moved on to more high-profile assignments. But then when Christmas Eve arrived, he found his thoughts drifting back to the Delgados and their unflinching belief in God's providence. And then in his words, I continue to wrestle with the irony of the situation. Here was a family that had nothing but faith and yet seemed happy, while I had everything I needed materially but lacked faith, and inside, I felt as empty and barren as their apartment. In the middle of a snow, slow news day, Strobel decided to pay a visit to the Delgados. And when he arrived, he was amazed at what he saw. Readers of his article had responded to the family's need in overwhelming fashion, filling the small apartment with donations. Once inside, Strobel encountered new furniture, appliances, rugs, a large Christmas tree, and stacks of wrapped presents bags of food, and a large selection of warm winter clothing. Readers even donated a generous amount of cash. So if you trust Jesus, this will be your life. No, 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 just kidding. <laughs> but God is providing for their needs, right? I mean, this is amazing. But, but it wasn't the gifts that shocked Lee Strobel, an atheist in the middle of Christmas generosity. It was the family's response to those gifts. And here again are his words. As surprised as I was by this outpouring, I was even more astonished by what my visit was interrupting. Perfecta and her granddaughters were getting ready to give away much of their newfound wealth. When I asked Perfecta why, she replied in halting English, Our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty while they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. That blew me away. If I, had seen, if I had been in their position at that time in my life, I would have been hoarding everything. I asked Perfecta what she thought about the generosity of the people who had sent all those goodies. 
and again her response amazed me. This is wonderful. This is very good, she said, gesturing toward the largeness of her, uh, of her wealth. We did nothing to deserve this. It's a gift from God. But, she added, it's not his greatest gift. No, we celebrate that tomorrow. It's Jesus. To her, this child in the manger was the undeserved gift that meant everything. More than material possessions, more than comfort, more than security. And at that moment, something inside of me wanted desperately to know this Jesus. Because in a sense, I saw him in Perfecta and her granddaughters. They had peace despite poverty, while I had anxiety despite plenty. They knew the joy of generosity, while I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope, while I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the spiritual, while I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something made me long for what they had, or more accurately, for the one that they knew. Some of you know that Lee Strobel is now an author who's convinced you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of people and introduced them to this Jesus. He has found faith and hope, and his whole life has been transformed. And this is how it works. We allow God, I mean, we allow God to have his way in our lives. And not only are we changed, but it changes the people around us. Think about partnership. And Jesus didn't just partner with us, but he saved us. Didn't just give us money, but he gave us his life. You think about perspective. Jesus cared nothing about his own needs and gave us everything to the point of death. And you think about provision. I mean, some of you already experience right now, are experiencing freshly right now, this peace this joy, this happiness that comes because you know this Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that it's his life, his death, his resurrection that, can, that really is the true way of happiness. God, let it upend all of our thinking. Let it change our expectations. Help us to experience it in a more real, in a more tangible way. Father, if there are people here who haven't yet put their faith in Jesus, I pray, God, that you would help them do that now. Let them cry out. Help them to just come and to confess that they need you. And to come to the one who has given everything so that they might be saved. And let God, let this happiness, this joy spill out from all of us, from all of our hearts, so that it might touch people around us. And that we would see others experiencing this happiness as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.